But right now, we're going to get into Galatians. We believe at City Light that the Bible is God's Word, and as it's read and taught faithfully, it's God speaking to us. So we're going to open up at sentence 7 of the last chapter and go all the way through. Galatians 6, sentence 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. Hey, everyone. Great to be with you uh, all again. My name is Jacob. If, uh, if you knew or if we haven't met, um, it's great to be with you guys here today and to have the pleasure of um, finishing off the book of Galatians together and, and walking through that passage. There's a couple of things before we jump into it. I just want to add just my two cents on how worthwhile and how valuable going through the rethinking sexuality course in small groups is going to be. Um, whether you're single or dating or married, wherever you're kind of at in life, I just can really guarantee that over those seven weeks... Um, Sitting under that kind of some, some really big ideas together and having that space to discuss is going to be really, I, I trust, really helpful. So um, prioritize those times over the next little while. Secondly, I just spilled a cup of coffee through my iPad. So if it shorts out and I start panicking, you'll know ahead of time what's going on rather than having to explain it down the track if I suddenly leave the stage to get my laptop as a backup. Um, and thirdly, uh, we're about to sit under God's word, so I think it'd just be good to start our time with a time of prayer, asking that what's going on right now isn't just us and our thoughts um, uh, bouncing around with each other, but what would be happening now would be God speaking to us. So let's start our time by praying. Heavenly Father, I just want to just ask um, that you will do as you've done over these past many weeks as we've been walking through the book of Galatians and that you would use this text um, and this letter written so many years before to be a, a means of speaking to us now. We ask uh, for each one of us that there would be, um, that, that these words would ring true, that they would, um, they would connect with us on a, on a level that is significant and they would actually be, um, they, would, they would have the power to transform us in how we think and how we love and how we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hopefully some people have seen the, the movie Unbroken. Can anyone can I get a show of hands who's seen the movie Unbroken? It, it was big when it came out. It was 2014. Um, it was filmed in Sydney, so you can actually, like on Cockatoo Island, if you go and watch it, you'll see some, some Sydney landmarks there. But it followed the true story of uh, Louis Zamperini, who was an American... Uh, Olympic runner 
who, along with many others, was, um, was roped in to fight in World War II. And he's got a, a, this um, incredible story of his plane being shot down over the Pacific Ocean, um, of spending weeks at sea before eventually a ship came along and rescued him. Um, but he was actually rescued by, by the Japanese and taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp where he, along with the other Allied soldiers, were just subject to just horrible conditions, just torment and abuse. You see everything set up to just completely just degrade them and to break their spirit. And the, the movie follows in particular the relationship between Louis Zamperini and one of the Japanese guards, Corporal Watanabe, who has taken a particular personal interest in just breaking Louis, in, in having him just finally just collapse and crumble and despair because time and time again, he just shows this sense of resilience. He's strong, he's defiant, he's confident, and he's courageous. And there's this one scene in the movie that I think um, is one of the most kind of standout that sits with you, where, where Corporal Wantanabe tells Louis Zamperini that he must stand with this large plank of wood, this railway sleeper over his head. And he has another guard point a gun at him and says, if he drops it, shoot him. And the movie slows down just for, it's about seven or eight minutes, this scene, where he's literally standing there, not saying a word. He's, he's trembling. He's sweating. Everyone is looking on in silence. As you, as you feel as you're watching this great weight he must be holding up, as you feel in his soul the, the question that must be running through, which is, is this worth it? Should I just let this go? Should I just die? Is this enough? I've suffered so much. It has been so hard. Shouldn't I just give up? Sometimes following Jesus can genuinely feel that same pressure of just holding a great weight where you feel in your soul like it is maybe just too much. That the pressure of continuing might just feel too hard. Where there's exhaustion that comes from within as you, as you try day in, day out, to fight the sin that we find within us, that we've been talking about throughout this series. Those desires in us that lead us to not to what we know is right, but what we know is wrong. There's the pressure that comes from, from trying to do things that are just on, in and of themselves difficult, like loving people who are hard to love, which we're called to do again and again and again in the Bible. There's the pressure from opposition, from the outside, from things people say or things that we read, that, that make you feel like there is something silly about this decision that you've made to, to walk in the way of Jesus. There's often the compounding disappointments and discouragements when the church, for example, isn't everything that we hope it would be. Or when God doesn't do what we wish and what we hope he would. And when those times come, the feeling that you've probably experienced if you follow Jesus for any length of time is, is this worth it? Can I actually persevere? Can I keep going down this road, given that going down this road is hard? It doesn't seem as easy as taking a left turn and trying something else. And so you're left with a choice, which is either to, option one, just pack it in, and say, I'm done. This has just been too much. This is too hard. I can't keep going, and to, and to walk away. Or option two, to kind of turtle down, to kind of go and withdraw into yourself and just maybe just do the minimum, do what you consider to be the, the, the smallest possible effort in following Jesus just to get through. Or option three, to somehow find a way to joyfully persevere, to, to keep going and not just doing it, gritting your teeth and, and not liking it, but to, doing, to do so with a sense of joy. And that's what 
this passage is calling us to. At the very end of the book of Galatians, Paul is making his final appeal to these churches in Galatia to, despite all of the pressure, to despite all of the, the temptation, to not give up, to keep going, to keep pressing on and following in the way of Jesus. And the way that he argues for this is to really, at the end of this, uh, end of this chapter, is to put forward two things that followers of Jesus need to be confident of in order to joyfully persevere. And the first is that we need to be confident that it is worth it. And secondly, we need to be confident in the cross itself. So that's what we're going to be unpacking today as we go through it. So Paul's first point is that although the life that he is calling people to is difficult, it is worth it. And he does this by pointing to something that we all just take for granted in so many arenas of life, which is the law of returns. If you've got your Bibles open, keep them open. But he starts off in verse 7, which Jez just read for us. It'll be on the screen as well. By saying, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will reap. Now, if you remember the context of where we've been in the book of Galatians for really the last few weeks that we've gone through, Paul's made this big claim that it's not uh, the way that we have relationship with God, the way we live life as it is meant to be lived, is not by just mindlessly following a list of rules. It's not by subjecting ourselves to some harsh laws, but it's by understanding grace, the idea that God loves us so much that he has done what it takes to restore relationship with him, not through our own effort, but by his love for us but that freedom doesn't freedom from the law doesn't mean that therefore life is just to be lived by giving in to every little whim and impulse and desire that we have because just obeying every little desire we have isn't in fact freedom it's just a different type of slavery and so it's in the context of this argument that he pushes against i think a particular line of thinking that maybe you've experienced in yourself and that line of thinking is this you might say, well, I've been set free. God isn't holding me to account to, to live th- according to the law. So I might as well just do what I want. I might as well just kind of live according to what I want to do. I can sin because at the end of the day, I'm forgiven. At the end of the day, I'm going to end up in heaven. So in the meantime, why not just do what I want? And I'll still get the kind of reward later on. That's the kind of summary view of a, a, a line of thinking someone might take. It's kind of akin to maybe uh, uh, someone getting a job at a company where their dad is the CEO, where they, well, they might do a bit of work, but they know deep down that their job is safe. They're not going to be held to the same account as everyone else. And so in response to this line of thinking, Paul says, look, God is not mocked. Do you think God is this kind of joke or this kind of naive being that you can just kind of skirt around and outsmart by living according to just everything that you think is right and receiving the same benefit as if you had lived the life that is living out the freedom that he offers. And to explain this, he uses this analogy of um, you reap what you sow. Now, yesterday I was chatting with a friend who um, is not a, not a Christian. He was asking what I'd be talking on in church, and I explained this line, you reap what you sow. And he's like, oh, I know that. That's a bit like karma. And I think sometimes we, we, we sort of think that maybe this is how God is working, that it's kind of like you do something good, and that's how you get the good thing. So if you help an old lady across the road, maybe later the day you find $10. Or if you cut someone off in traffic, maybe later on you run over a nail. And that's kind of the idea of karma. And it's not really, these two things aren't linked. They're linked in the sense that a good gets good, but there's nothing else joining, helping someone across the road and getting 10 bucks. 
And so maybe we think, though, yeah, God, the way that he works is, look, you do your thing, you go to church, you be good, and then you kind of get the reward, whether it's you won't get sick or you go to heaven or, or the r- inverse of that, you sin and then maybe you lose your job or whatever else it is. But that's not what Paul's saying with this line, you reap what you sow. Um, he expects you to kind of think through the, the farming analogy a little bit. And what he's doing in it is he's pointing out the intrinsic connection between our behaviors and our actions and our futures. So when you go out, if you know, put yourself in the, in the mindset of a farmer. If you go out into your, into your dirt and you, you sow your seeds, you, know, you go up and down in the lines and you kind of put your wheat seeds in the ground up and down in rows, and then you go back to your little farmhouse and you sit on the, the porch for six months or whatever it is for farmers do. We all know farmers have got it easy. Um, <laughs> two fowls, trying to picture what I was thinking of, and the, my main image of farming is the McCain's Juicy Corn commercial, <laughs> where he says, like, hey, Marge, the rain's here. So that's what I'm picturing. So he's sitting out looking at the dirt. But anyway, however farming works, you've sowed your wheat, and the point is that six months later, or whenever it is the time comes to go out and harvest, you don't walk out into your field and think, well, I wonder what we're going to find out here. Is it going to be apples? Is it going to be bananas? Is it going to be potatoes? No, it's going to be wheat. The sowing and reaping is a direct cause and effect relationship. You sow wheat, you get wheat. You sow weeds, you'd get weeds. You sow nothing, you get nothing. That's the law of returns. And we understand it applies from everything from, uh, from living a healthy lifestyle and exercising to learning an instrument. There's a, a relationship between what you put in and what you get out. And so Paul is simply saying, like, God's not mocked. He operates to an extent within this same principle. And so he goes on in the next line, in verse 8, and he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. A couple of weeks ago, we... we talked about this idea of the flesh and the spirit, which we won't fully go into now, but in, in short, the flesh is this kind of summary word for the set of our internal desires that are selfish, that are inward, that are self-pleasing and sinful, whereas the spirit is the other part of our inward desires that are renewed when we accept the gospel to be drawn towards love and peace and goodness and, and so on. And Paul says, if you go out and bit by bit with your small decision, say, I'm going to I'm going to invest in me. I'm going to gratify this greed or this lust or this selfishness or whatever the sinful behavior is, that that's going to grow. And in the future, when you get to the end product or however you want to think of it, you're not going to find life, but you're going to find corruption. But he says, if you sort of the spirit and in invest in love, kindness, patience, peace, unity, the things that we looked at a few weeks ago, well, the result of that is eternal life. Now, even this, we need to be clear as we think about kind of what eternal life is because if you don't stop and think about it, what might come into your mind might be, you know, clouds, harps, floating around, this kind of ethereal, bodiless, hypothetical, alternate reality out there somewhere. And maybe that's, you think, well, that's the kind of reward. But that's not what the Bible kind of pictures when it talks about eternal life, which it does quite a lot. 100% what the Bible's talking about with eternal life is it's permanent, it's life forever without death. But it's not in this kind of weirdly detached, bodiless kind of future state. In fact, it's often talked about more as a, in a lot of ways, a continuation of the now. Just a better continuation of the now. I want to show you a couple of verses that I just think illustrate this in a helpful way. In John 17 verse 3, Jesus talks about eternal life. 
And he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So we see there that eternal life can even be summed up as a relationship with God, uh, as it was meant to be. 1 Timothy 6.12, this is Paul, the same person who's writing the letter we're looking at. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And again, he's saying, take hold of this eternal life. That is something that is there for you to, to take from the moment you entered into this relationship with God. So Jesus in, in, and, and Paul, in, in what we're looking at here, is inviting us to live the life that we've been called to, to know God and to, and to obey him. And one of the criticisms that's often leveled against Christianity is that it makes you indifferent or apathetic to life now. Because if you believe that you know, somewhere down the track everything's going to be good and perfect in the future, then why would you care about this life at all? Why would it matter what you do now? It's all going to be, be made good in the end. But Paul would disagree. He's saying, you know, having an understanding of the future, of what is going to come, actually profoundly impacts life now. Because if our lives now serve to steer us on a path either towards being more inward and selfish and, and corrupt with an eternal multiplying effect, or being able, on the other hand, to, to bear fruits in increasing measure of love, peace, joy, wholeness, that is not just in the next life, but is now into eternity, it makes our lives now really, really important. And C.S. Lewis, the author who wrote um, a whole bunch of stuff on Christianity, in, in an essay, he, he sums up this idea really helpfully. He says, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. So that's the first thing to take from this sowing and reaping analogy, which is that our pursuit of holiness or our, the inverse, our fight against sin matters. Because we are cultivating and farming within ourselves in a direction that potentially can extend to eternity. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, look, what your life now doesn't matter. The point of this passage is that it does. And, he, and Paul is wanting to empower us to live by the Spirit, to use the freedom we've been given by his grace to transform bit by bit into who we were made to be. So that's part of the sowing-reaping analogy. It's pointing out the direct correlation between an, our actions and our future. But there's, a, there's another even deeper part to this metaphor, which is that sowing and reaping is a matter of delayed gratification. So look at verse 9, which I think is the kind of central verse holding this together. Where Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul understands that there is some aspect to this kind of spiritual farming, the choosing the good over the easy and in living according to the Spirit, which, is, which makes you weary. It's tiring in and of itself. And we live in a world of instant gratification where what we often want and what's held out to us is, here's how to feel good now. Here's how to get results now. 
He's, here's how to be happy now and in the moment. But if you imagine again with, with the farmer who's just spent a day out in the hot sun, walking up and down, planting seeds in the ground, to get to the end of the day, to look back at the field of dirt and to say, that was a waste of time because I've still just got dirt and I'm sweaty. If that's what the, some, a farmer said, you'd say, look, bro, you, you're missing it. You're missing the point of this whole thing. That's not how it works. Because if you stick around, it's going to come good. It's, you're, not, you're not even just going to get the seeds you put out back. You're going to get those but multiplied by heaps. It's going it's to expand. That's how farming works. You'll get more back than you put in. It wasn't a waste. But I think that we are often drawn not to think about, well, how's this going to play out in the future? Or what good thing is there to look forward to? But to, to think of the here and now. To think, how can I just feel good for today? How can I be comfortable? How can I have it easy? How can I be happy now? But like anything good, from reaping a harvest, to building a company, to winning a war, the way to get through it is to zoom out and look at the big picture. To look at where it's going. To look at the, at, at the future. So Paul's trying to say, look, don't get weary you, there will be a harvest. And in light of that, he then says in the next verse, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's how Paul joins up his farming analogy with, with what he's pushing on people to do. He's saying that even though it's hard, even though it's costly, doing good is worth it. It pays off in the end, so let's keep doing good and loving those around us. Carrying each other's burdens, as we heard last week. Because it's worth it. And Paul is just pressing this upon us. And so he might be reminding some of you of this today. He's been reminding me of this this week. Particularly those of you who might be feeling weary. Maybe you've been a Christian for ages. Maybe you've been a Christian for even a couple of decades. And in those years, you've been through a few churches. And within those churches, you've had relationships with lots of people in a whole lot of different small groups. And you've invested in ministries, or you've invested in people. And you've built relationships, and maybe those, some of those relationships have just ended. Maybe some of them have not ended well. Maybe you've put in effort with people to not have it be reciprocated and just to be let down. Or you've loved people and they haven't noticed. Or you've even been mistreated in return. And after years of this, you're feeling, what's the point? Why would I keep putting energy into, into the church and into other Christians and into loving other people when you maybe get nothing back? And so you're discouraged. There's not a whole lot to show for it. Or maybe it's that the church is disappointed, not just kind of the little seed church community that you're a part of, but maybe it's, it's just the, the state of the church in the world. When you just see all of the failings and all of the, the letdowns and all of the news about just how wrong church has got it. And you think, why, why would I be aligned with this group of people? It's not worth it. Why wouldn't I just look inward, look at my own little pocket of friends around me and my family and that's it? And what God would want to say to you in that moment is, you will reap what you sow. And it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But a life poured out in love, in, in living out who we were meant to be as people made in the image of God, if loving our neighbors and loving God as we're called to do, we'll have a harvest. And that harvest is eternal life. 
That is, knowing the good, loving, caring, life-giving God who made you forever. Getting to, getting to experience his love and his intimacy. And ultimately, for all eternity, be, to be surrounded by a great throng of people like you who know what the good life is. There's a reward. There's a blessing. And that there's, there's little blessings along the way in just becoming, the more you love people, becoming more like the type of person who loves people, which is a good thing in and of itself. And there is the blessing of community and at times receiving love back. But the ultimate harvest might not be for some time. And so Paul is saying, take the long view because it is worth it. So that's the first reason to be, to be confident, to joyfully persevere, that following Jesus is worth it. But Paul finishes his book with, a, with another reason, another reason to joyfully persevere. I'm not going to spend as much time on this one, but it's how Paul finishes the book, so I didn't want to just skip over it, because this is how he ends, which is that we need to be confident in the cross. Look ahead into verse 11 through to verse 14. This is Paul's final words. Um, and uh, probably most of the other rest of the book, he maybe he's got someone to scribe, because he... But this here, he's, he's so personal, he's writing himself, and he says in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is Paul finishing up his letter to the Galatians. And he's just trying to reinforce his main point that he's been hammering along week after week, which it's not about following the law. It's not about circumcision. It's not about getting these things right. It is about Jesus and it is about what he has accomplished on the cross. And he's pleading with them, not to abandon that reality. Not, not, not to abandon the good news of the cross for something else. Because the good news of Jesus is freedom and it's life. But despite how good news the cross is and how freeing it is, the reality is that people do turn away from it. And people do go to something else instead. And in verse 12, he taps into why it is that people do often move on from grace. And in particular, he taps into why this group of Christians have moved from this good news of the gospel and of grace to, to pushing for circumcision as the way to know God. And he says their motivation in, in verse 12, which is that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ, if you are aligned with it, will bring persecution. And the reason that it brings persecution is that it's offensive. It's not offensive in, the, in, a, in a callous, unloving, clumsy way as, as, often, as offensive things often are. But it's offensive because it undermines the things that most of us hold dear. It says that the things that we maybe we've even thrown our whole life into as the thing that we should be confident in aren't as good as we think they are. So in the Jewish culture, it was the law. It was people... You know, going out and getting circumcised, for goodness sake. And so it's a bit offensive to someone who's gone to that length and just done this big thing to say, hey, that, w that actually doesn't matter. That's, that's an offensive thing to say to someone who's done something that significant. But that's what the cross does. It says, 
It doesn't matter if you do that or not because that's not how you get right with God. And we live in a, we live in a different sort of boastful culture where our confidence might be in things like career or in wealth or in achievement or in looks. But Paul ends by saying there is only one place we should boast. He says in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Galatians is whatever might be pulling you in another direction, whether it's the need to justify yourself by your own works, whether it's the desire just to be comfortable and to gratify yourself in some way, whether it's the desire to avoid persecution and avoid being thought of as less and to fit in, whatever else it is, there is only one place we can boast, and that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That he died in our place, that he is enough, that everything else that we could look to is, as the Bible says, like filthy rags. And the only way we can unlock life as it is meant to be lived is through Jesus and knowing what he has done for us. So I want to ask you, are you confident of that? As we finish this book of Galatians, we've sat in for so many weeks now, just to be able to reflect on where are you feeling the pull away? Where are you feeling the pull towards law, towards needing to do some religious act to make yourself feel good about yourself before God? Where are you feeling the, the pull towards sin or addiction or indulgence? Where are you feeling the pull towards being liked or, or just not persecuted? And to remember to take the big view. That in the end, there is a harvest that is worth it, that eternal life is on the line. And that is a result of living a life into the Spirit, as we're called to do. And at the cross of Christ, Jesus dying in our place is the single greatest truth in the universe. It is a treasure unlike anything else. And we have that to take hold of. So it is worth it and we can joyfully persevere. Now like Jess said, we wanted to finish our time not just being like, alright, thumbs up, good truths, see you later. Because um, that's a weird way to respond to something like that. Um, we wanted to finish our time as this book with an extended time of, of, of worship in song. And the reason for that is that often like, people have made efforts to write these songs that can capture in words uh, beautifully these great realities. And doing it through, through music enables us to, to slow down, not just to kind of power through some text, but to, to dwell on the words, to dwell on the realities that we're singing of. To, to engage our, our feelings, our emotions, our hearts with these truths as well, and to worship, to acknowledge the goodness, to remind ourselves of these realities, of this long view, of eternity and of the cross in ways that we just often can't do or just don't do during the week as we're, as we're caught up with everything else that's going on in life. So right now the band's going to come up at the front as we, as we prepare to sing. I'm going to give you just one minute where you can just write on those white cards any, any um, questions you might have, you might want to find out about getting connected with, with church community. Um, take a minute to fill those in, they'll be collected at the very end. But, but as you're doing that, or if you're not going to write on your cards, just take a minute just to just even spend a little moment in prayer, um, just with God, uh, acknowledging what you're thinking and what you're feeling, before just in a moment's time we, we actually get up and we worship together. I'm just going to pray before I do this now. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you um, just for the, the good news of the cross. We want to thank you that anything else that we might look to for confidence, even though it falls short, we're not left with nothing. But we are left with the greatest thing in the universe, the knowledge that you loved us so much that you came and you died in our place. 
And we just pray, knowing that many of us might be feeling just genuinely tired, weary, questioning whether or not we can keep going. And we just ask that you would be reminding us of your goodness. That you would give us eyes to see the eternal life that is held out before us. That you would give us eyes to see that this sowing is not in vain, but there is a harvest to be reaped. And we pray you'd be continue to transform us by your word as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.